So are we recording that right now? Um, Not yet? Or? We are recording, yep. Okay. On a sweltering Friday afternoon in the middle of July, I took a trip on public transit from one side of Washington, D.C. to the other with a producer in tow. All right, I'm off to the uh, other half brewery across town to meet a couple of my colleagues, uh, Aparna and Tess, uh, and uh, have about probably a 10 to 15 minute walk to the metro station. I live kind of right in between two metro stations. We're going to walk to the one that's south of me, which is the Tenley Town metro station, because we're headed uh, south and then east to get to the other half brewery. Now, riding city transit isn't new for me. I grew up in New York City, and transit was my ticket to teenage freedom and independence. And I've used transit in D.C. a bunch over the years, including sometimes on very hot summer days while wearing a dark suit and sweating, trying to get to my job in the Obama White House. This, on the other hand, was a comparatively low-stakes trip from northwest D.C. to a brewery in northeast D.C. located in a neighborhood called Ivy City. Which you cannot really get to by uh, subway or metro, but we're going to take that and then connect uh, to a bus. Uh, so hopefully we'll have a good trip. It is extremely hot in D.C. today. I just looked at the forecast. We're in the low 90s on a very sunny day. The real feel is a round number of 100. So uh, hopefully I will not melt in this journey across town. A brewery. Okay. So when you say low stakes trip, you are not kidding. Yeah, right. I guess it depends a little bit on how much you value a cold IPA when it feels like it's 100 degrees out. But the trip really wasn't about beer. It was about testing the transit system. So this brewery in Ivy City, it's about seven miles across town from my house. And if I drove in a car, it would take me about 30 minutes. But I wanted to see what it would be like to make the trip by metro and bus. So, D.C. It's one of the biggest cities in the U.S., and taking the metro and the bus sounds like it should be simple. But I'm guessing it wasn't? It was not. All right, we've been waiting uh, more than half an hour now for this bus. Don't don't see it coming down the road, so trying to figure out whether to stick it out here or start an extremely long walk in the heat or find some other option for getting there. I'm Andre Greenwald. And I'm Tiffany Chu. This is Mode Shift. A podcast about the past, present, and future of how we get around. We'll get to the rest of my journey in a bit and what it tells us about why transit systems across America need so much help. But first, a bit about the two of us and what we're going to cover over the next six episodes. Tiffany, we're recording this uh, fairly late at night, well after normal working hours. I Take it your role as the chief of staff for the mayor of Boston doesn't allow for multi-hour afternoon recording sessions? That's right. If you were to find me during the day, I'm typically running up and down the stairs at City Hall or chasing the mayor down, trying to manage the 19,000-person organization that is the city of Boston and simultaneously driving the mayor's agenda, which uh, some of you might know from her historic campaign was built on climate built on transportation, and built on equity. In a previous life, I was a designer and an urban planner and founded a transportation technology company in San Francisco called Remix, which was later acquired by VIA and how we met. 
I grew up into a Taiwanese immigrant family in a small New Jersey suburb, Bridgewater, where you honestly just can't get around unless you have the resources to own a car. And that influenced my experience in the world deeply and led me through my career to where I am here today. My experience was was so different. I grew up in New York City as a kid, and we you know, took public transit everywhere. Uh, and as I got older, I followed the path of everyone else in my family. I went to law school, but I was always interested in policy and politics. And so after I clerked for a couple of uh, federal judges, uh, I jumped onto President Obama's first presidential campaign in 2007 instead of going to the big law firm. And uh, after he won... Uh, I worked uh, in the White House for five and a half years in a bunch of different roles, including in the chief of staff's office, then spent a year in Tokyo at a think tank and teaching a college class on the American presidency before coming back to the U.S. and joining VIA as its head of public policy uh, about six years ago. Uh, I've got a wife and two little kiddos, a five-year-old and a three-year-old who are thankfully sound asleep upstairs right now. And I am praying to the podcast gods that it stays that way while we record. Well, we're very thankful for your well-behaved kids. Yeah, they are uh, definitely well-behaved when they are sleeping. So over the last couple of months, I've been talking to a wide range of transportation experts. And in the coming episodes in this series, we're going to walk through a bunch of the different forces that are holding our transit system and mobility back in, in America, as well as those forces that could help unleash its promise. Tiffany's going to be here to help me analyze all of these forces. And so to kick things off, I uh, wanted to play you a quote uh, and get your reaction, Tiffany. We could dramatically reduce the number of cars driving around New York City if instead of driving by yourself or taking an Uber or taking a taxi, which, by the way, I think of uh, as, uh, and I like to say this, so please don't, don't hate me, is basically the same as walking into a kindergarten and lighting up a cigarette and smoking, right? This is what you're doing when you choose to drive by yourself. You're inflicting secondhand smoke on all these poor people. Um, I think if you, instead of that, shared your ride or took a bus or took a subway, we could reduce congestion and emissions dramatically across the city. Now, we don't have a great, we can't ask you to do that today because for a lot of trips, there's no great solution. But what if there was a great solution? I think that's sort of a, a vision for the city of the future. That's my boss, the CEO of VIA, speaking at a Bloomberg summit in 2020. Single occupancy vehicles during rush hour, like smoking in a kindergarten. What, what does that evoke for you, Tiffany? It evokes for me this philosophy that doing something like driving in your own car, in your own vehicle, by yourself, is basically a disservice to everyone around you in a way that you don't really realize until later because there's so many unintended consequences, whether it's climate, whether it's taking up space that could be better put to use, like housing, et cetera. And it is just a very powerful metaphor yeah, I mean, I I feel like it's tough though, right? Because for a lot of people, like driving is, is really the only good way to get around, right? So it's it's kind of hard to to blame a lot of people for 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 driving instead of taking you know transit when when like transit's not available or wildly inconvenient. Yeah, and this is definitely my advocate voice coming out, and you know, definitely something that I think about and grapple with, especially as a city where there's many places in Boston that are transit deserts and don't have good public transit. So how do we expect those people to get around, get to their jobs, see their families? So it's a very real struggle and real tension that folks across the entire country face and deal with. But I think we have some solutions to fix it. 
I wanted to start by playing this clip because it gets to the heart of this series. There's so many factors uh, that are converging now to make us rethink mobility and transportation. We've got aging infrastructure, outdated planning, challenges with access to, to jobs and opportunities. Technology is changing things. Too many people can't reach their jobs. And then on top of all of that, we got the climate crisis and an overheating planet. Yeah, it does really feel like people are waking up to the harms of the current system and realizing that there are much better ways to plan and build transportation and increase freedom of movement and decrease the cost to society. And that's what we're going to unpack over these next six episodes. We're going to hear from experts, practitioners, elected officials, and riders about how we can change the paradigm for transit. We have created a society where your access to fresh foods, your access to educational opportunity, your access to jobs is all contingent on whether or not you can purchase the golden ticket into the economy, which is the ownership of a car. It it really comes down to elected officials that understand the intersectionality between good transportation and health and access to opportunity and, you know, the economy as a whole. We've just gone so far in this direction of car dependence. The only way to get back to a more balanced equilibrium is to be a little bit extreme about reclaiming these cities. The way technology is supporting community transit now is the way of the future, and it is the way that community transit can fulfill the promise that we've made for the last 30 years, even in a rural area. So I'm very optimistic that we can provide a multimodal set of solutions for really kind of any particular environment. A truly equitable transportation system or environment for me is one that sees people first. I have a word, freedom. How did we get to a point where our transit system is under so much pressure at a time when investment is needed the most? Now, we're both based in the U.S. Tiffany's in Boston. I'm in Washington, D.C. So while we'll be borrowing from other countries and regions, we're going to largely be focusing on the U.S. And America is struggling. The American Society of Civil Engineers, they put out these uh, grades on infrastructure pretty regularly. And the last report card, it gave the U.S. transit system a D-. minus. A D-. minus. Tiffany, if you saw a D- minus on your report card, h- how would you react? Oh, my God. Well... One, I would cry. Two, I would shove it into the bottom of my backpack. And then three, I would probably get grounded by my parents for a month. Okay, okay, good to know. No, no, uh, no D minuses for Tiffany Chu. But I mean, you can see how we got to a D minus, right? So ridership on transit was declining even before COVID hit. And today it's still not anywhere close to where it was before the pandemic. Delays are increasing and systems are struggling. And so here are some stats. There's a $176 billion repair backlog across the country. Nearly half of the population doesn't have any access to transit. And only 5% of U.S. workers use a train or bus to get to work. Wow, God, only 5%. Those are, um, those are not good stats. We also know transit is so important to so many people's lives. So to kind of get at some of this, we, we've been you know asking a lot of other people to characterize the state of the system. And one of those people is uh, Jerome Horn. It's like we know what we need to do, but we don't have the financial means or political will to get it done. 
Jerome is a very proud transit nerd. He's a director of transit leadership at a major transit foundation. And get this, he owns a collection of hundreds of transit signs and model trains and buses that he dubs the International Micro Museum of Transit. I want to check that out one day. And growing up, when many 10-year-olds were writing letters to their favorite athletes or actors, Jerome was writing them to the head of a transit agency. I grew up in Baltimore, and Baltimore does have a subway, uh, even though people who live there, the, the joke is nobody knows that Baltimore has a subway. It's one line, very short, but uh, it has what's called a rail fan window. So at the front of the train, you can go sit in the first seat and you can see out the front. And as a kid, I always wanted that seat. And I was so excited when the train would transition from being elevated to underground uh, in a tunnel. That was always a rush for me. And so much so that when I was 10 years old, I sent my first email and it was to the CEO of the transit system in Baltimore asking him, hey, how can I get your job when I grow up? Jerome's probably the biggest transit evangelist you can get. And whenever he jumps on a new rail system, he still gets that same feeling he got as a 10-year-old watching the train go underground. But the chronic problems facing the system can make that magic feel a little less special. You know, we're seeing a lot of our older systems in this country uh, falling apart. You know, trains are derailing, things are catching fire, literally parts of tunnels are collapsing in, in certain places. And, you know, that's just because transit has not been prioritized or been giving the, the funding that it really needs to, one, you know, bring it up to what we call a state of good repair to make sure it can just operate. Um, let alone think about expanding and adding new lines. I also think that, you know, one of the things we've gotten wrong in this country is we also look at transit, you know, oh, we, we built a new light rail line, but no one's riding it, right? And a lot of it is planning and thinking about tr transit projects in isolation rather than part of a network or system. So, I, yeah, I think those are sort of a number of things, whether it's maintenance, political will, uh, and land use are probably some of the, the biggest things that we haven't been doing well. It wasn't always like this. In the early 20th century, America had a very robust network of cable cars and early subway systems. But in those decades between 1920 and 1950, we saw the financial collapse of those systems, thanks to the Great Depression and the rise of cars as competition. And over time, transit became seen as more of a welfare system rather than a utility for the benefit of everyone. Yeah, it wasn't always that way. And a lot of the great transit that exists in this country was built by private companies a long, long time ago. At a certain point, um, transit agencies became uh, government entities or authorities or districts. And a lot of that sort of happened at the time during and after uh, white flight. You know, after World War II, a lot of people were returning from war, and the GI Bill helped a lot of people uh, move into new homes out in the first-generation suburbs, particularly a lot of uh, white people. And they were able to sort of build that generational wealth as families. And those opportunities weren't quite afforded to low-income families and black and brown people in particular. And once people moved out into the suburbs, you saw sort of this erosion of um, existing transit in inner cities uh, and also thinking about uh, once again, it's planning of some of those mo more modern systems like BART in California or MARTA in Atlanta, uh, the, the Metro Rail in DC, the, the thinking really changed to, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to build these systems that are like hybrid subway sort of in the inner city, but also hybrid commuter rail, you know, much further out into the suburbs. And during that time, we saw a lot of disconnection from the bus 
and the bus was sort of othered because once people stop riding bus, the bus infrastructure and the, the amount of service that was being run sort of began to deteriorate over time. Ah, the bus. The workhorse of our transit system and the piece that's most often neglected. Yeah, the bus is where I ran into problems on my trip to Ivy City. It's what made the length of it totally unreasonable. My journey in the metro was pretty straightforward, fast, smooth, aside from some broken escalators. Yeah, so we're approaching, uh, we're approaching Tunlingtown Metro here, and there's a lot of construction over the first set of escalators. And looking at a sign here, it says that uh, there's an escalator that's going to be out of service for... Uh, Approximately 22 months. Oh my God, 22 months? 22 months, isn't that crazy? Anyway, we walked past that broken escalator and uh, we went to go wait on the platform. So we, did, so we just came down to the platform and it looks like according to the digital board here, we have about an eight minute wait, not too bad, to uh, take the metro in the direction that we need to go in. The time from leaving my house to getting off the train eight stops away was about 35 minutes. Uh, we then left Union Station and we walked another 10 minutes or so to get to the bus stop. See, it's not exactly a bus stop, but it's a place that has a sign on the sidewalk. And is this, yes, the D4. There wasn't much there. There were no benches or anywhere to sit. There was just a curb and a tree box behind us. And it was so hot. And then we'll just, we'll see how much longer we have to wait for this bus here. But I think our, as we consult our apps, which I'm, you know, I'm not sure are 100% reliable here. Uh, it seems like we might have a bit of a wait on our hands. And uh, this kind of last leg of our journey, I fear, is going to prove the most problematic. After about 15 minutes, I looked at my phone just to see what else was available. You know, if you look at the uh, other options uh, Google is suggesting, there there. uh they're suggesting that you could also take some scooters um, or a lift. But obviously, uh, a lift is going to cost us some extra money. And it looks like even the scooters are going to be quite a bit more expensive than, than taking the bus ride. Okay, so wait. At this point, how far from the brewery are you? A couple of miles. And did you consider the free option, walking? Yeah, I could have walked. But yeah, I got to remember, it felt like 100 degrees outside. And I wanted to use the option that was most useful to the most people. Of course, there's also lots of riders who can't walk that distance in the heat because of their age, or maybe they have kids with them, or they have a disability. And so we stood there, taking in the exhaust from passing cars and trucks. You definitely have the experience, you know, even in D.C., which has, compared to many other American cities, very good public transit, just how dominated our system is by automobiles as we stand here. We haven't seen a, a single bus go by in either direction. Uh, all we've seen are lots of cars, some motorcycles, some delivery trucks, and we've seen a couple of couple of bikes. Yeah, some bikes and a, and a few scooters. But very, the, very much the dominant thing we are seeing are cars, most of them being driven by people by themselves. I kept looking down at my phone to see what time it was, and the producer and I had been there, you know, for well over 35 minutes, breathing in uh, the hot, sticky air as cars whizzed past us. And I gotta admit, I almost abandoned the operation, but right when it seemed like just totally unbearable, the wait thankfully ended. 
Just stepped out on the street and I see a bus a couple blocks away. So fingers crossed, this is, this is our bus. D4, it's got Ivy City flashing in the front. All right, and finally, we were on that bus cooling down. I'm just looking at what Google estimates the drive would have been. It would have taken us eight minutes to get there if we were driving or in a car. So we, uh, we have like the, the eight minute option. And then you know what, what I experienced, which was waiting for more than 35 minutes. And we are in the middle of what's probably gonna be a 15 or 20 minute ride here on the bus. So just huge, huge time difference. I'm also extremely hungry right now. So uh, it's, sign, rocking up some steps, this looks familiar, definitely approached this a different way I came last time, I think I, I think I drove and piled a lot of beers into my trunk last time I came here. So you made it, and the batteries hadn't totally run out in the recorder, so how long did it actually take you? Actually, first, the batteries did run out um, multiple times, but fortunately our producer, I was well prepared with some backups. But to answer your question, it took more than an hour and a half to go those seven miles. An hour and a half for seven miles? Yeah, that's uh, not, not, not a short trip. Oh, my God. Well, this also begs the question, how did your ride compare to the colleagues that you were meeting? Uh, it did not compare well in terms of time. I think uh, it took me uh, more than three times longer to get there than, than my colleagues uh, who took cars to, to get to the brewery. I'm sorry, I'm so late. I'm so late. How are you? Good to see you guys. How are you? How did you? Uh, how did you guys get here? I drove from you Alexandria. Drove. Okay. How long did that take? Uh, a little over 30 minutes. Yeah, yeah. It was. I, I looked at the metro times. I looked at the rideshare prices for my area, and I said, better hit the car. So, yeah. And I took a lift um, because it would have been a. 50-minute bus ride on, like, two or three buses, depending on the route, and it's just so hot today. I was like, I'm going to melt. Um, so, and this was, I'm only a couple of miles away. I'm in Navy Yard, so this is probably, like, a 12-minute lift ride, so felt like the balance of, like, that much time and being hot on the, on the bus was probably not worth it. So they decided to light up a cigarette in a kindergarten class. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, I was hot and very late, but at least I, I had my moral code intact. Uh, but I don't know. I, I do have to say, right, can you really blame them or anyone else who drives when, when transit uh, isn't super convenient to where you need to go? And, you know, if I have to do that trip again, I'll probably take a car. You know, the stakes of my trip were low, but the consequences of unreliable transit are really high for lots of people across America who need to get to school or work or medical appointments. And so, I don't know, why do we have this system that makes it so much more attractive to take a car, even when only going a handful of miles in a big city like Washington, D.C.? So uh, to get some additional context on this, I turned to a guy named Peter Norton. I'm a historian, and uh, it, I think it's pretty obvious if you think about it that everything we deal with in our lives out in the public world is the product of a long and convoluted and sometimes troubling history. And I don't think we can 
either perceive what we're looking at accurately or make it better until we recognize the history that formed it. Peter's an associate professor of history in the Department of Engineering and Society at the University of Virginia, where he teaches the history of technology, among other things. He's written multiple books on America's car dependency, including The Dawn of the Motor Age in the American City. One way that can really help to reveal this perspective is to uh, look at a satellite view, like on Google, of, a, of an American city or a suburb or even a small town. And as you zoom in, you start to notice that, yeah, buildings are there and streets are there, but it's just lots and lots of pavement, big roads, lots of parking. And from that point of view, it you know we have towns that actually look more like car storage zones than like communities. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the decline of public transit? So as cars boom, you know, we see uh, at some point we see a decline in kind of streetcar and bus lines. Obviously, there were Great Depression, other other factors potentially at play. I'm curious, with cars booming, was the decline of transit something that happened organically or very much not organically? Such an important question. Uh, you could plot those curves against each other. And yes, you would see that as car ownership rises, transit ridership flattens and then slowly declines. Now, from that coincidence of curves, you'll often see people say that, okay, this shows that people preferred the car to transit. And I think that's a misleading over, oversimplification because uh, even when large majorities of people were still either riding the streetcar or riding the bus, or very often both, um, you see transit ridership uh, already suffering because uh, the service that the street railways and the bus lines could offer was affected by the number of cars, even when it was a small minority driving. And this comes from a number of things. One is from the automobiles themselves, which could drive on the tracks. They could block the path of the electric streetcar. The cost of operating a street railway rose steeply in the 20s after World War I because of inflation. Um, the coal to generate the electricity to operate the street railways rose steeply in price. Labor costs rose. When the labor costs weren't met, there were strikes. And when there were strikes, people had to find other ways to get to work. And a lot of street railways had to make ends meet by skimping on maintenance, cutting corners in other ways. These things all were impediments to public transit and helped to start it on a gradual downturn. Of course, the Great Depression uh, contributed that to that as well. And then after World War II, it accelerated. The economic shifts that hurt public transit and helped cars were also fueled by a public relations stroke of brilliance. America was one of the first countries with a large auto industry, and that industry was incredibly good at influencing the narrative at the right time. And that large, large automobile industry figured out early that it needs to tell stories about the car that are attractive to enlist popular support behind them. Can you talk a little bit about um, the role that the automobile industry or other industry players played in that decline of public transit over time, after World War II, perhaps? Yes. Well, even before World War II, the automobile interest groups were very interested in finding a way to encourage people to drive more. And that led to things like uh, efforts to 
cast doubt on the legitimacy of walking in city streets and sometimes even outlawing it as jaywalking. That also included trying to raise the speed limit, trying to shift the blame in the event that a motorist collided with a pedestrian, trying to, trying to shift the blame toward the pedestrian. Now, after World War II, yes, this, this trend certainly accelerated. And this had to do with a complex combination of factors, which I'm going to try to simplify as an effort to redefine the accessibility of a destination as its accessibility by car. It was supposed to be a, a city's obligation and a state obligation to ensure that you as a driver could get where you want to go by car. And that includes having a parking place available for you when you arrived at your destination. And this was to be a public responsibility born at public expense. And as Peter explained, after World War II, this led to a whole host of policy and planning decisions that led to the construction of roads throughout our cities, as well as huge amounts of parking, as cities competed to be attractive to car travel. And at the expense of transit and other ways to get around, the car began to own the road. These public policy measures alone, apart from transit, help to explain transit's decline because they show a massive commitment to supporting driving that took resources that could have been committed, at least in part, to making transit work well, too. Wow. I think many people assume that once the car became a mass-produced and affordable option, it then became the only way that people wanted to travel. But so much effort and government investment went into making it attractive and convenient to drive a car. Absolutely. And meanwhile, there are these huge costs to the environment, public health, and economic mobility. You know, if you thought power plants were the main cause of greenhouse gas emissions in America— you'd be wrong. It's actually transportation. Transportation is the number one contributor to the climate crisis in America today. And so many families across the country are forced into spending huge chunks of their hard-earned money on transportation. According to AAA, the cost of car ownership has jumped to an average of almost $10,000 a year. $10,000. 25 years ago, when Beth Osborne first started her career, she quickly realized those costs. I realized that from a very young age, it had been truly impacting the extent to which I had access to opportunity. When I was in college in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, uh, I needed to find a job. Uh, and most of the jobs that were available required you to drive to get to them. But I couldn't afford a car because I didn't have a job, but I couldn't get a job because I couldn't afford a car. What a terrible economic system that requires that. Beth is the director of Transportation for America, a major transportation policy organization based in DC. She previously served in senior policy roles at the US Department of Transportation. Beth has been advocating for solutions to our transportation crisis for more than two decades. And so I asked her to describe the economic cost of our dependency on cars. Well, just in terms of numbers, it's the second largest household expenditure. And it's an expenditure that is deeply tied to housing cost because as people go further and further from the things they need to get a cheaper home, a home that is cheaper because it is far from the things you need, your transportation costs go up. 
And often they go up beyond the savings that you are getting from that house being further from the things you need. Also, transportation costs are sunk costs. You don't earn money on buying a car. You lose money the second you sign the papers on owning that car. And a lot of the costs are dynamic and unpredictable. You don't know when your car is going to stop working or break down. You don't know when gas prices are going to go up out of nowhere and stay up. Uh, You don't know when they're going to be low. So we're forcing people to put a ton of money into this area that, that takes money from them and doesn't return it in order to be able to buy something that should build wealth and often blocks them from being able to make that purchase and build wealth. We have created a society where your access to fresh foods, your access to educational opportunity, your access to jobs is all contingent on whether or not you can purchase the golden ticket into the economy, which is the ownership of a car. And people needing that golden ticket, as you put it. Has that, over the last couple of decades, how would you, like, do you think things have changed for the better, for the worse? Are we sort of exactly where we were 20 years ago on this on this question of, you know, car dependency in this country? You know, it's an interesting time. I mean, overall, most of our transportation trends are going in the wrong direction. We're spending more uh, money. We're spending more time. People have to travel. Every human in the U.S. has to travel about five miles more per day than they did when I got to Washington, D.C., Uh, in order to accomplish the exact same things that they were accomplishing then. It's just lower productivity. It's more wasted time. What's ironic, of course, is the benefits we use to justify this arrangement was a time savings benefit. The notion that if we built more space for cars, you'd save all this time. But in building all this space for cars, we shoved everything you needed so far away that you have to travel so much further You've lost a ton of time, uh, and it's just because we are we are we are progressing after the wrong things. So, so much of uh, whether or not transportation functions or not, and whether or not it functions efficiently efficiently, is based on where we place things. And uh, unfortunately, we have spent the last. 30 to 40 years aggressively placing everything you need as far away from you as possible, it makes it hard to share rides. It makes it hard to travel outside of a car. And every trip inside of a car is going to be inefficient because everybody's crisscrossing paths and getting in each other's way. And that's why what we experience with transportation is inconvenient, frustrating, and expensive. Inconvenient, frustrating, and expensive. But Tiffany, as you know, this show is also going to be about finding solutions, not just identifying the problems. So I'm curious, what do you think is going right for transit right now? Well, I do think that transit, especially in dense metropolitan areas, is still more efficient and quicker to get from point A to point B, um, probably in the top maybe five cities in the U.S., um, it is still more competitive than the car in downtown cores. Other positives, I think there's a really strong EV boom right now. People are really understanding the 
importance of electric vehicles. We just passed a historic climate bill at the federal level, um, unprecedented and also very 11th hour and surprising. And I think we've got some momentum. There's something there. Yeah. I mean, just to add to that, I think, uh, yeah, you mentioned the climate law. We also have the infrastructure bill that passed last year that is pumping a bunch more money into public transit across America. I'm not sure that's the impact of that has started to to be seen yet, but I think it absolutely will. I feel like there's a lot of great stuff happening at the local level and, and the work you're doing and your mayor in Boston is exemplary of this, but I feel like there's a lot of a lot of mayors now across the country and, and not just in big cities and in, in smaller cities and even in, in kind of rural towns who are doing really creative, interesting stuff on the mobility front. So you think we can break this paradigm? I think there's lots of highs and lots of lows uh, in this transportation world. And the reason why you and I are both here is because we see the highs and we want to push forward. We think there's hope and optimism. And what we've heard today about all of our conversations around the importance of equity, the history of how we got to this point in America, our new climate policies, talking about technology. I think there's so many reasons why uh, this new decade coming up will be different than the past one. Yeah, I agree with you. I think despite the history and the very real challenges we have, I I remain quite optimistic about about the future, both uh, with all the investment that's coming from government as well as, I think, innovation that the private sector uh, is bringing to the table I think we've got a path forward. And I, you know, I'll just add that I, in this this country that we live in that is quite polarized at the moment, I do think so many of the issues around access to jobs and in- improving and expanding transit are actually quite bipartisan. And that also gives me hope. So coming up this season, we are going even deeper on how to fix transit from infusing equity and planning to integrating new technology to serving rural communities to imagining the car-free city. So stay with us. Mode Shift is produced by VIA in partnership with PostScript Media. VIA's technology enables partners to create end-to-end transit systems from planning better networks and streets to operating efficient public transit. Learn more at ridewithvia.com. This show is hosted by me, Andre Greenwald. And me, Tiffany Chu. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us in the app of your choice and send a link to the transit nerd in your life. The show is produced by Stephen Lacey, Anne Bailey, Cecily Mesa-Martinez, and Dalvin Abouage of PostScript Media. It's also produced by Francis Cooperman, Andy Ambrosius, and Andre Greenwald from VIA. Sean Marquand composed our theme song. Sean Marquand and Greg Villefranc mixed the show. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll stick around as we explore these topics more deeply in the coming episodes. 